0: Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DiMaio.
1: And I'm Karina Longworth. Every episode, we catch up on one of those movies we never found the time to see. This week, it took a lot of time. We're talking Martin Scorsese's Vegas gangster epic, Casino.
0: We're going to play a game. We'll try and raise some money for independent movie theaters. But first, we are going to catch up on what we've been watching while we shelter in place. We're going to start here with this week's guest, Lindsay Weber, the host of the hilarious, ridiculous, and surprisingly informative Who Weekly, your podcast guide to the world of celebrities whose names you know, even though you're not entirely sure why.
2: I have been watching The Sopranos for the first time ever, and it's kind of a shameful thing to admit that you've never watched The Sopranos, but I think every time I started it, it just... It got away from me. I didn't have the patience to sit down and really like appreciate it, but I'm watching it and it's so fantastic. And I know it's so cliche to be like, I get it, but it's like, I get it. Like it's <laughs> fantastic. And on, you know, when you watch something that's so like storied, it means you also have to read every book about it. You have to read every article that's ever been written. You have to read, watch a documentary.
0: Like, this isn't just what you turn on. This is, I mean, this is the air you breathe right now. It's like
2: choosing something that, is one of your main focuses right now. And that thing happens to be one of the best things ever in its genre. So you're like, oh, well, this has so much supplementary stuff surrounding it that it will take up my full life if I plan. Because I want to know exactly what people talked about when they were watching it when it was on, too. And that's also difficult to do. So you have to really do digging to find out the context of the show. So it's just, it's really a great choice. I recommend.
0: In the first episode of the show, I talked about my love of the reality competition show <laughs> Ink Mastered. Uh, host, <laughs> hosted by Dave Navarro from oh, Jane's yeah. Addiction and the ex-husband of, of Carmen <laughs> the Electra. The other
1: <laughs> ex-husband of Carmen Electra. <laughs>
0: so I'm watching this week, right? And it is the penultimate episode. It's been an extremely good season. We're finally going to find out who's going to go to the finale and who is going to compete for the $250,000 and the feature in Ink Magazine and the title of Ink Master. And I'm so excited to find out the finale. And then... A voice that I've never heard comes on.
2: Due to the COVID nineteen pandemic, governmental orders to stay home and shelter, and for the safety of the artists, judges, canvases, and the crew, the Ink Master Turf War finale could not move forward. What? No! Yeah, and they're
0: and they're just splitting the prize money no! equally
2: oh among my God. the contestants. Wait, that is robbery shocking frankly now we'll never know who the real ink master is that sucks
0: <laughs> it's just exacerbating the lack of closure in my life and the lack of not knowing what's what's oh, happening man. so I, I feel a little shaky
1: well now i'm worried about top Chef. Oh. i know I,
0: I i well i was already worried about top chef because the finale is supposed to be in italy
1: oh <laughs> um, no
0: saturday is cleaning day around the house and then sunday at, to celebrate essentially my wife daughter and i have a triple a movie triple feature and this week, uh, we started with uh, My Cousin Vinny, which was actually Ooh, nice. hilariously suggested to me by the algorithm after I watched Casino. And we watched <laughs> yes. Bringing a Baby, and um, we watched all the, all the Boys I Loved Before. That's
2: oh, an nice. amazing <laughs> triple feature. Wow.
0: it's a pretty good Sunday. <laughs> I mean, I know day. I'm late to this particular boat. Setting aside the obvious genius and the glowing future of Lana Condor, the female star, I have to say that Noah Centineo kind of has something like, yeah. you know, I feel like the <laughs> handsome male movie star bench is thin and I feel like that handsome young dudes earned themselves a spot. I feel like less <laughs> El Gort, more Centineo.
2: <laughs> Best of luck to you finding more Noah Centineo content in your life. And then
0: finally, <laughs> on, the, on the deeper side, um, I was really excited to see that the Criterion Collection really seems to be I'm um, pumping this movie The Fits. It came out in 2016. It is All the right. first and so far only feature from a woman named Anna Rose Holmer. It's about an 11-year-old girl in this city school in Cincinnati who's on the cusp of adolescence, and uh, she turns her attention away from boxing to this competitive dance team, and then this kind of strange epidemic of seizures uh, breaks out, and the movie uh, takes a turn from there, and it is a very peculiar and really kind of marvelous little movie um that i you know when i saw it i felt like well no one else had seen it so i was kind of glad to see it had been kind of lifted up and given kind of the prime Mm -hmm. spot so i totally suggest people see the fits
1: Yeah, I have to watch that. I mean, right now we're heading into like the last 10 days of the month. And so this is when my Criterion channel (laughs) watching really ramps up because I start panicking that shit is going to start disappearing. So like, I I absolutely need to turn my focus to that. You're going to be watching the Noah Centenario collection. (laughs) Okay, so I also have like a reality show situation and then I have a movie to talk about. Um, Speaking of Top Chef, I don't know if you're watching like the bonus (laughs) content, but this season there's a new thing called What Would Tom Do? Do? No, I'm just, Have I watch Last Last Chance Kitchen. Yeah, like, as as I, I can't imagine to.
2: there's, like, is there more that I'm missing? How am I missing more top chef content? Like, I'm mad, actually. You need, I'm pissed.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, what would Tom do is for people like us who, like, are not satisfied with Last Chance Kitchen, who need more. My husband and I feel like Last Chance Kitchen is sometimes almost more satisfying than the regular top chef because mm-hmm. the competition sure. is so condensed. And also, we love Tom and mm-hmm. he is so much more casual on Last Chance Kitchen. Yes. So that takes like like casual Tom, it's like vacation Tom <laughs> on what would Tom do. <laughs> and it's basically him and I really should have looked up her name, but she was the woman who filled in for Gail when Gail was pregnant. Oh yeah I
0: remember her. I don't remember her um, name either.
1: Right. She's a very attractive younger brunette woman and it's her and Tom and Tom basically like makes his version of a thing he would make for the challenge on that episode while she stands there and drinks wine and flirts with him outrageously. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to have to ask you to open a jar. I'm not happy about oh, it. Okay. Wait, one, two, three.
0: Oh, oh! you did it? I did it. I was going to show you a trick.
2: What, what's the trick?
0: See the back of your knife? Oh, and yeah. ping, Like that.
2: Except for I think that that actually messes the seal up.
0: It depends how hard you hit it.
2: Well, that's, that's true about everything, isn't it? Um, I'm talking Uh, about booze,
1: man. I'm talking about booze. Oh, neither. It's all you know, mixed emotions because like you're excited that Tom's cooking and like it's you know that feels very wholesome and you're just watching a master do the thing they're masterful at. But then he's also fending (laughs) off her advances. I love that. I love that. And the first episode of it, he made oysters. And so she's just like throwing out single entendres (laughs) at him. Um, It's just a lot. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, Also, the other thing that I have been spending time on, um, much less, you know, sort of satisfyingly, is that I finally read the book The Devil's Candy about the making of the movie Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, And then the whole like reading of that book was meant to build up to watching the film, which we did last night. And wow, it is a notorious flop for a lot of good in the reasons. 80s,
0: making money and living well was all that mattered. And no one did it better than Sherman McCoy. Now he was a master of the universe. Calm, soul, cool, collated. Let's not lose our composure over a few hundred million dollars.
1: Everybody had told me how great that book is. And it is definitely groundbreaking. There's nothing like it in terms of. A reporter getting that kind of access to write about any movie, you know, since Lillian Ross did it for the Red Badge of Courage. But a lot of it is written from the point of view of someone who is trying to kind of translate the excesses of the film industry that are normal to an audience that doesn't know anything about the film industry. And so a lot of it is like, can you believe how many people are on set right now? And like making fun of Brian De Palma for what he eats in his trailer and you know, just like there, a lot of it is just kind of like it's very entertaining, but it's not really about why that movie turned out to be a disaster. And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, the problem is that this was kind of basically the last moment where a bunch of white people could make a movie about racist white people <laughs> and make the racist white people the protagonists. Um, oh, I love and that. That, I mean, they were, you know, the the book explains how they were trying to. You know, they were worried about being seen as being racist, and that's why they changed the judge character, who is a white Jewish guy in the book, to Morgan Freeman. Um, But everything they do along those lines, in practice, just makes the situation seem worse. And so the movie is kind of fascinating for those reasons, but it's also almost unwatchable, and it's over two hours long. That's too long. As we are going to talk about a movie that's almost three hours
2: long... (laughs)
1: Karina,
0: can you take us back to 1995 and put us in the moment in which Casino came out?
1: So Casino opened Thanksgiving weekend in 1995, and it did just okay. It opened opposite Toy Story and Money Train, and it came in fifth for the weekend. Its final domestic gross of $48 million was slightly less than its reported $52 million budget, but it did well internationally. So Scorsese had begun the 90s with Goodfellas and Cape Fear, both of which were big, big hits, which revitalized the industry's interest in supporting him. Then came Casino, which was sort of break-even financially, but got an Oscar nomination for Sharon Stone and was incredibly well-received. Scorsese then used his position of power to make a few films which were not hits, including The Age of Innocence, which I love, Cundun, and Bringing Out the Dead— So the 90s are kind of this fascinating decade for Scorsese where he, like, comes back in a big way and then, like, falls to the bottom again. (laughs) Um, 1995 itself was a weird year for Hollywood. Apollo 13 and 7 were among the top 10 grossing movies for that year. But the rest of the top 10 were movies that were either for kids, like Toy Story and Casper, or were films that are now considered to be garbage, like Batman Forever, Waterworld, and the highest grossing movie of that year, Die Hard with a Vengeance. But it was also the year of a lot of movies that didn't make a ton of money or win awards but have stood the test of time better than those big hit movies like Before Sunrise, Bad Boys, Friday, Clueless, Kids, To Die For, and finally, Michael Mann's Heat. So these are the movies that I think of when I think about that time because I was 15 in 1995. Um, But also the fact that both Heat and Casino came out in the same year and De Niro didn't get an Oscar nomination for either is kind of nuts. And he was actually in the middle of a stretch of 21 years between Oscar nominations, between Cape Fear in 1992 and Silver Linings Playbook in 2013. So similarly, this is obviously Sharon Stone at her peak. This is just three years after Basic Instinct. And it's four years before she played the Gina Rowlands part in a remake of John Cassavetes' worst film, Gloria. My absolutely favorite piece of trivia from Sharon Stone's Wikipedia profile is this. In 1999, the president of the Hollywood Foreign Press ordered all of its members to give back luxury watches (laughs) that Sharon Stone had given them because they refused to be bribed into giving her a Best Actress nomination for The Muse. And then they nominated her anyway, and she lost to Janet McTeer for Tumbleweed. Oh, the Hollywood Foreign Press. So, to sum up, the 90s were a wild time.
0: (laughs) Lindsay, so we know you're not deeply ensconced into the world of the gangster film. No. What is your relationship to Scorsese? What's your relationship to this
2: movie? You know, I respect Scorsese. I what I've seen, I think, is fine. I have to say the Irishman, everything surrounding the Irishman was so f- frustrating to me. It like went against everything that annoyed me about... The nature of, of film recently, that it was a Netflix movie, that it felt like somebody who loves film and is recognized for classic film kind of fell into the pole, took the money and ran, that it was three hours and that everything about it was just felt like bloated, right? And I watched it and I didn't hate it, but it did feel like kind of the same story stretched really Long, like really thin and a lot of the same things over and over and over again. And after actually watching The Sopranos, (laughs) you know, and which is like these little smaller chunks of these stories, I feel like it was it's done so much better. And, you know, my whole thing is like I haven't seen a lot of these, so I'm trying not to prejudge. But after watching Casino, it's The Irishman like it really he has a style and i didn't i don't think i really grasped that until i saw this this movie you know and i think that now i have a little bit more perspective on like the things that he pioneered or kind of the visual aspect of everything that made me maybe like the irishman a little bit more which i can't believe i'm saying but you know it is what it is
0: (laughs) i am like almost constitutionally like by nature i am not a completist like i i I never sort of feel the need to sort of tick boxes. You know, like I was never like a baseball card collector. Like I was never, I just never needed to really do that. And I'm the same way about filmmakers. And if you tell me that there are, that someone made 10 movies and there are four I really have to see. And then after that, there's a mid tier. If I get to like five and six and they stop not being good, then I'm never going to get down to seven, eight. I nine. feel the same way. I just want every. I just want to love every movie. There's a million movies in the world. Why not find one that you're going to love and it's going to move you and teach you about yourself and the world, etc. But somehow with Scorsese, he's made I think four thousand movies, and I have seen all but two. No. Casino uh, just happened to fall in this mm-hmm. mid '90s crack mm-hmm. when I was sort of like going out you know, to like punk rock shows all the time. And somehow I just happened to miss the three-hour movie that felt a little bit like, you know, the three-hour movie I had just seen a few years back from him. And so I was totally psyched to sort of jump in and see where this one fit into the whole picture. How about you, Karina? What's your general Scorsese
1: take? I am not... Actually, as much of a completist as you are, there's definitely a few I haven't seen. I haven't seen Last Last Temptation of Christ. I haven't seen most of the documentaries. I haven't seen Cundun. But I really do love a lot of his films. And um, I really loved The Irishman. A lot of his movies grow on me more and more um, once I kind of give them time. And with Casino, I thought I had seen it in the theater in 1995, but when I was watching it this time, I think that I probably watched it on a two VHS uh, set when I worked at a video store around like 2000, 2001. I didn't really remember it very well, except for the fact that I, I remembered it being very stylish. Um, that, like, basically being this style that we associate yeah. with Scorsese of, of the rock music and the quick cutting and all of that, but just being a, a very concentrated version of it. And, like, it was almost too intense for yes. me that it's really, really relentless, you know? It made me think a lot about how it sort of fit into the 90s, because I remember starting film school um, in 1998, and at that point, it's still feeling frustrating that movies weren't taking the kinds of chances that music videos took or that, um, you know, the avant-garde films that I was watching in school, you know, were, you know... it, It felt like Hollywood was really closed off to trying aesthetic things. And, you know, Casino is... Breaking all of those rules and it and it is, you know, pulling out not just references to music videos style and and commercial style. But I mean, the way that like the bloody bodies and sort of the last part of the movie are filmed. I mean, that's borrowed directly from the Godard films of the 60s in terms of of blood being a graphic element. So the, all of that, you know, was pretty exciting, but I have to say that watching this film with the Irishman sort of fresher in my mind, I felt like Casino was kind of missing that deeper emo- emotional register.
2: It it's It's a lot of process, which I like because it felt like reading a book. And it makes so much sense that it's based (laughs) off a book that is nonfiction. It's a it's telling you the the story. It, It reminded me of obviously Wolf of Wall Street. It's it's telling the story of a business, of a subculture, of like what goes on behind closed doors, which is cool, but it's just one of those things where you're kind of like, is this a documentary? I mean, I, you know it's not. But <laughs> the fact that it's just it's so detailed in it's telling, you know, you can tell that the person who co-wrote it is definitely somebody who's like, we have to get these details in here. We have to. And it makes it good, but it also makes mm-hmm. it very, very long.
0: Never before has so much like style and pizzazz and like filmmaking flair been deployed for just straight exposition dumps
2: right. for an hour.
0: <laughs> it is just constant 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 information most of it is just people saying las vegas is a place we make declarative statements about las vegas like me las vegas washes
1: away your sins (laughs) it's like a morality car wash it does for us what Lourdes does for humpbacks and cripples
0: you know just like everything is just like tell me what vegas is like tell me what kansas city is like and very little of it frankly is telling me what like The characters we're supposed to be watching are like it's essentially just like the pit boss does this. This is his job.
2: Well, there's a lot of guys. There's so many guys, guys. and not to be. I think these mob movies, like a lot of my problem with it is I lose track of guys. I'm like it's like this guy does this and this guy does that. And to be fair, they have very similar names and they look very similar, (laughs) and you lose track of who's doing what to who. And even when people die, you're like I don't even remember what that guy did. And this happens in The Sopranos too, so I'm not even like trying to say it doesn't. But I think sometimes in these movies you lose track of of who's who and that's because the whole thing is just saying this guy does this and this he passes this and, blah, 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 and like it gets confusing at least for me
0: you know i was totally delighted to watch the scorsese movie that i haven't seen because the truth of the matter is even the ones that aren't that good are totally immersive and i knew i'd be swept away um, but for all the things that are kind of like bad raps on Scorsese about the characterizations of women, about the sort of about violence, mm-hmm. that feels gratuitous about, you know, style over substance and stuff like that. Like, this is the most Scorsese Scorsese movie I can think of. Like, even though there are so many that are better, um, you know, to kind of bring up to the mountain. This is the one that kind of demonstrates all the things that he can do, but they're kind of deployed toward his worst Instincts to a certain degree, like it is so expertly made, it is so occasionally thrilling, and at no point was I bored, but at the same time, this is totally bottom tier to me, and I think for me, it comes down to, at some point he's spending about six minutes doing like a beautifully rendered, beautifully staged breakdown of the minor cheating scandal.
1: Now here's this guy reading the dealer's whole card and signaling his buddy at this table.
0: Said so one time before.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, it's and that's just what these hustlers look for. They cruise from casino to casino looking for weak dealers the way lions look for weak ants. So this is
0: the thing with the, right. the cattle prod. And this is the thing that ends with the hammering on the hands. And so ultimately what, you're, what, you, what we're supposed to learn from that is that Ace is a really tough guy. Yes, he's gone mainstream, but don't forget that this is a mob operation. Don't forget that this is a violent man. But he spends seven minutes doing that. And he does not spend seven minutes uh, letting us understand what any of the main protagonists like see in each other.
2: Yeah, Ace. I mean, I was... I was wondering what you guys think about Ace like as a character because for me it, he felt very surface level like we know he's a smart guy we know he's like good at the gambling thing like he can his, he's the numbers guy whatever you know he's Jewish that's something but like you get not a ton of kind of emotional depth like Joe Pesci you're like this is a character this is like Joe this is the best Joe Pesci I've ever seen you know like this is incredible but for Ace I feel like there's just not a lot there and he's the main guy
1: yeah I mean this this was one area where I felt like what Scorsese was doing in Casino, he did again in The Irishman and did it better. Yeah. Um, this idea of, of the non-Italian outsider having mm-hmm. this major role on the team and like on some ways he'll never assimilate with the, these other guys. Um, but, again, like, the Irishman has this, like, other layer of his personal life and his family and, and right. like, his old age reckoning with everything he's done. And with this one, it's like, yeah, you know, then I've landed on my feet. Yeah. <laughs> right. You get to the end. He's in Florida.
2: He's got his beautiful glasses. He looks incredible. And he's like, mm. well, and you're like, okay, great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Good for you. (laughs) And then, like, the whole thing of Sharon Stone, it's like, well, you know, ultimately she was a whore and a junkie and she died.
2: Also, my other question for you guys, too, is I was really confused as to what we were supposed to think about that character, about her. Like, she's likable. She's hateable. The way she treats her kid is, like... Terrible, just so terrible, and it's hard to overlook. But you also want to be like, how was she treated by these guys? She was kind of gaslit a little, or was she? Like, I'm so curious what you guys think about what she's supposed to be.
0: Well, she has such a good introduction, right? Like, when we first see her, not only is she gorgeous, not only is she Sharon Stone, right? There's that moment, and it's the first silent moment where Ace is watching her do her thing at the casino table over the security camera, and everything goes silent for a while. And it's love at first sight for him. Not only has he never seen someone so beautiful, he's never seen someone control the room before like that. Our introduction for her for the next like minute and a half or so is you see that she is completely master of her own domain, right? Like she knows exactly who to tip. She knows exactly how to get everything she needs to out of everyone around her in her life. She is like an operator essentially at his level. And it's thrilling. And you think, oh, look, these two people have met their match. We're going to really get into something here with them. But we never really do.
1: So, I mean, my take on her, and I, I agree that it's not as deep as I'd like it to be. And I wish that her death wasn't just kind of brushed aside, although I get that the, the characters are kind of, like, done with her at that point, And so they don't care. I read it as because of this relationship with James Woods, who, you know, was her pimp or whatever – she only understands um, human relationships as being transactional. And so she can't have a relationship with her daughter because there's nothing to buy or sell there. Mm-hmm. She really only, like, values Robert De Niro for this box of jewelry. And then when she starts to feel like the box of jewelry is threatened, she moves in on Pesci to, you know, kind of give her, like, a security. And so, you know, the tragedy of the character is that, like, she's just a, she's just a seller. Um, That's the only way that she can survive in the world. And then I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to make of just the way that they're able to sort of like flush her out of the movie through her drug problem. Right.
2: Like the one part that I really endeared me to her, aside from her intro, which I also loved because it kind of also told the story of how you would uh, pay off everyone throughout your whole existence so that everything is set up for yourself. Like I liked that was a great montage for her character but also just for like learning about the system but I the scene where she says to him you know you i was i was set i was good at what i did i could do my own thing and you took that away from me and now i have to like ask you for money even though you knew she was asking for money for like not a great reason (laughs) you know even you (laughs) still were like you're right like she could have got this money herself and but you you kind of took that from her and that I guess that part to me was like the one part where I was like, you know what? That's right. Like that sucks for her because she kind of didn't really want to do this in the first place when he was trying to when he was like whining and dining her and proposing her. She was like, eh. He was like, oh, OK, just try it. him.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was watching it with my husband who's seen this movie a lot. And he was just like at the beginning of the relationship yelling at the screen, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't <absolutely>. do it. <laughs> like as though every time he sees it, he's hoping that De Niro like won't try to marry her.
0: Going back to The Irishman, which it is definitely felt like, oh, now I've seen this movie, I now understand to a certain degree more about The Irishman and m- or more about what he is playing with as he kind of, you know, looks back into, you know, the old toolbox. The The Irishman is sort of less kind of masterful in terms of its pacing and it's pizzazz and stuff like that but it is deeper Mm -hmm. right it is about aging in a way that is powerful and so it earns its length as a way and you know using these familiar faces and these familiar scenarios and bringing them into this story at this age there's real power in that and this movie is one of those things where the surface stuff works so well and then I do think that there's like Thematic depth. Like, if you really break down, like, well, what does Sharon Stone need and want? And what does Robert De Niro want? And you've created this character who is kind of a wise guy, but his thing as a bookmaker and as a gambler and then as a casino boss, it's all about information. You know, he is the person who's going to know more than anyone else, you know, whether that is understand the way that the slot machines work, or whether that is the relative bench strength of the Seton Hall men's basketball team so he can place a bet. And it's all about like trusting things to behave the way that they're going to behave. And then between, you know, the kind of chaotic force of Nikki, this, you know, like, literal psychopath, and the chaotic nature of Sharon Stone's addiction, you know, he can't have control over those things. And that's a a beautiful and interesting and a deep thing and where this movie like really misfires is in all the middle stuff it's in all the mm. just like letting me know like why people are connecting, like letting me know like what they want from each the other. The teamsters
2: like, and the packages yeah. and the this and that. And what I liked about that part though was the bigger picture of, oh, how did Vegas become Vegas today? Like Vegas didn't used to be for children. How did it become literally Disney World? Oh, this is the story of what Vegas used to be. And I think that's the story that the, the book told, right? And that yeah. is kind of what that was about. And then this is a translation of that but a little bit of that was lost until the very end when you're having that voiceover be like and now you know now it's disney and now they just take your your money it's for families and it's boring or whatever that that was really interesting and that could have been maybe part of the fuller story more for me
0: for me you know this is sort of quintessential scorsese and not necessarily in the in a good way this is also quintessential de niro too cuz he's clearly excellent in this movie but at the same time like all of the kind of mockable Ticks like all of the things that like you know someone doing an impression are so sort of on display you know it was it's almost like the last sincere performance it's the kind of thing where you wonder if you looked at this and be like yeah i've i might have done this one too many times you know where are those fuckers again
1: (laughs) but again i mean i do think he finds like this other register in the irishman i mean i I think it's it's a real problem that the irishman was released in the way that it was and so that it was able to be sort of it didn't really, like, compete for attention in the same way that theatrical films did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, that performance just, like, gets ignored by the Academy. Like, it's... I think people just kind of didn't watch the movie or didn't finish it, and so they don't... Really see the range that he performed in it. I think it's a much better performance than the one in, con- in casino, which is also good. But then when you think about the fact that he made Heat that year, like I'll take his performance in Heat 10 times out of 10. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's actually like one of the best, most nuanced performances from him while still basically playing a gangster. He's very like one note in this. He's
2: very calm, cool, collected. Maybe that's part of it because he's he's level headed and and Nikki is a hot is a hot head and that's the the dynamic between them. and That's the problem, you know, when your your boy from your childhood shows up and messes everything up for you and you're just trying to be you're just trying to go straight. You know it's a good business, but you're gonna lose the business because of emotional personal drama. Like I get that, but it just felt very like one level, you know, because he's always the fixer. He's always fixing things. So he has to be calm, cool, collected. And I don't know. It felt like that over and over again.
1: And the movie just like, it doesn't take a pause to like understand the tragedy yeah. of being mm-hmm. that guy.
0: Being any of them, really. Joe Pesci really is uh, kind of a miracle. Like, what a weirdo. And yeah. the, the fact that, you know, it's amazing how many how many kind of iconic roles he has um where he's essentially allowed to do like a version of the same thing, yet they are so <laughs> distinct. You know, like Leo gets in the uh, Lethal Weapon movies, and you know, uh, Vinny Gambino from My Cousin Vinny, and these two Scorsese movies are are really like indelible. That all just hinge upon like. Like, hey, strange Joe Pesci, go crazy.
1: Hey, is Joe Pesci in
2: Home Alone? Yes. Yeah, that is the that's the Joe Pesci I grew up with, like slash just like <laughs> that's who I thought he was. That I had no <laughs> other context of him. Yeah. And as it turns out, that's literally a parody of Joe Pesci's other characters that he has <laughs> done. It's like That movie (laughs) was playing towards the adults. But me as a kid, I'm like, oh, that's a scary guy. But like, he was so singular. It turns out he really wasn't that singular. That was like his thing. (laughs) When I was talking about like having this big Scorsese hole, really the hole is up to the year that Leonardo DiCaprio became involved. Because I realized Mm -hmm. that I've seen everything that Leo's been in. That to me, that's like... My guy, like I, I'll i see anything he does basically because of my childhood and being obsessed with him as like a young person and just like he's imprinted on me. So I've seen all of his stuff. I wonder if his characters will kind of melt into kind of the same type of guy as we're saying is happening to De Niro, like in the Scorsese run of films.
1: Well, he's played more... Individualized characters, I think, than De Niro did. You right. know, like he did, he did Howard Hughes, and and he got to do like the Quaalude scene in The Wolf of Wall Street, right? And, and he, you know, he does like an accent in Gangs of New York, and and also in Shutter Island too, um, right? So yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I think they're more individualized performances, but there is sort of like, you know, there's a sweatiness that he always has in a Scorsese movie that he doesn't necessarily have in other films.
0: Karina, do you know? Like, what's your explanation about what happens to Sharon Stone? Because, like, it is like I was looking over IMDb earlier, you know, to do a little forensics on it. And it is amazing how quickly she drops off from being true A list to really being kind of a non entity while still making movies.
1: Well, a few things happen. I mean, you know, she was not super young when she did Basic Instinct, she was already in her early 30s, and Hollywood was more ageist then. Um, now it's, you know, we have this thing where it's like because of advances in plastic surgery and whatnot, <laughs> like Jennifer Aniston can pretend to still be 30 and yeah. 50. But it like it didn't really work as well then, um, especially because a lot of the roles that Sharon Stone had played were already adult women. Mm. You know, she kind of couldn't turn back the clock. Then I think that there were some bad choices like the remake of Gloria, which is like why remake a filmmaker's worst film? And, uh, you know, I think also There was sort of a backlash to her Mm -hmm. in the media um, of this idea. She was like a little bit too eccentric in the wrong way, a little bit too imperious. And then she married Phil Bronstein, who was like the, you know, the emperor of like the San Francisco newspaper empire. And then he got bit by a dragon. (laughs) And I think she kind of she did kind of go off the radar for a bit because she was living in San Francisco. And um, I think that at some point she kind of stopped maintaining her career to the extent that she would have had to. But I also just think that she a lot of it has to do with her not really getting great roles after Casino.
2: She recently was on I don't know if you guys watched The New Pope. It is one of my favorite The Young Pope and The New Pope are two of my favorite shows for some reason. I I watch I'm confused by 99% of it but I so enjoy watching it she was on the new Pope playing herself she has a sit down with the Pope who's played oh I didn't know she played herself the Pope is played by John Malkovich so she's sitting across from John Malkovich and telling him about how gay marriage essentially and he's like Sharon Stone thank you for coming (laughs) like so and it's an incredible scene and I think I texted my friend Fran like Sharon Stone's amazing in this
1: I love her I mean I think she's always great and she was somebody who, you know, was becoming a movie star kind of when I was first watching adult films, you know by myself in the early 90s and i mean i have a really vivid mm-hmm. memory of being in 7th grade and going with a girlfriend to see sliver <laughs> of course at the universal really city Baldwin. walk and like how that was like our big <laughs> friday night and then like we went out and we got like these black chokers like her character wears in that film and, Hell yeah. and so yeah she was she was a really big star at kind of the beginning of me being a w- really super hyper aware of who the big stars were um But yeah, it was like, I think that it just didn't work out for much longer.
2: Her name is pretty iconic. It's kind of hard to lose her if only because of that name kind of recognition. And she gets a lot of press for kind of whatever she does, which is interesting to me, even though she's not doing films that are like things that people are talking about. She gets press for going on dating apps (laughs) and doing, you know, showing up and doing basic instinct. Uh, tributes and stuff like that so it's like it is weird when she comes up in the tabloids because she still has kind of the presence of her old A-list self in a way.
1: Can I make a recommendation for maybe like new Sharon Stone stands? Oh please. So mm-hmm. she one of her first big roles and it's not even that big of a role but she was in this movie called Irreconcilable Differences yep. which you guys might remember as the movie where Drew Barrymore divorces her parents oh, but I I've I watched it <laughs> yes. pretty recently because I'm it's like I wrote about it a little bit in the upcoming season of You Must Remember This which I don't want to say too much mm. about but when that movie came out Every review was like, oh, this movie is about Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, his ex-wife, and Sybil Shepard, the actress he left his wife for. And Sharon Stone plays the Mm. Sybil Shepard character. And in real life, um, Peter Bogdanovich made this musical with Sybil Shepard called At Long Last Love, where she and Burt Reynolds sing Cole Porter songs. And it was just like this huge flop. In Irreconcilable Differences... Um, Sybil Shepherd is cast in her new boyfriend's musical version of Gone With the Wind and they <laughs> show them filming part of it and it's great. It's really, really worth a watch.
0: This civil war ain't gonna get me down So this is the part of the show where we ask the question and we answer the question. Was this a good movie to be watching right now?
1: I think I'm I I think I'm glad that I watched it right now. I mean, it's not going to be my favorite Scorsese film. But um, if I was ever going to spend the time to watch it, I have the time now. It was a fun (laughs) thing to kind of build a Sunday evening around with no pressure to be doing anything else. And I do feel like I kind of checked it off the list and and it enriches my knowledge of other Scorsese films, if nothing else.
0: Yeah, I think that even though for me this is like bottom tier Scorsese, get totally filled in a crack. Like I feel like I now understand what the Irishman's built on. I now sort of understand his whole deal a little bit better. And that is always worthwhile. Um, But the truth of the matter is like. Every single one, like even silence, like even kundun, even bringing out the dead, like very few people can can hold your attention Mm. for those three hours in the same way that it can. And if you if one can handle the truly extreme violence and I don't suggest that you should, but if you know that you have a stomach for it, there's invention and there's like electricity at every turn. And it is a Vegas movie that like really feels like Vegas. Right. And I have a feeling like none of us are going to be going to Vegas for like a very long time and sitting at a casino next to it like a lot of people. So this is probably the next best thing.
2: Yeah, if if there's any time to sit down and watch a three hour movie, I'm like pretty much against a three hour movie, let's say overall, I just, I really can't. And so if I'm gonna have any time that I'm gonna sit down and watch a three hour movie, no matter if the best movie, the worst movie, it's now. So I'm, I'm glad that I, I did it now.
0: We ready for a game
1: This game is based on my initial email with Lindsay about doing this podcast where Lindsay said that she'd been watching Julia Julian Julia. <laughs> And I was like, oh, maybe we can find a way to talk about the fact that Nora Ephron was married to yes. Nick Pelleggi, who wrote Goodfellas and Casino and was involved with a few other gangster films. Yes. So this game is called Ephron or Pelegi. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to read you a line of dialogue from oh my the movie. God. And you have to tell me if it was written by Nora Ephron or Nick this. Pelleggi. I love this. I love this. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so there's five questions. You guys work together. Okay. The first one is just one word. Very excited. Tiramisu. Well, that's Nora uh, Ephron. Right, but the, but it's
2: also could be... <laughs> I'm also thinking it's an Italian dessert, so a gummy <laughs> Nikolegi. Niple- that's a good
1: okay, point. Okay, let's say Nora. Let's say Nora Ephron. Yeah. Correct. It's sleepless in it's Seattle. In Seattle. <laughs> Right. Okay. uh, Number two, there's uh, it's two people talking. So the first person's a man and he says, and you're just going to wait under that plastic awning for an hour and then ride a Queen's bus and then slep onto the subway into Manhattan. And then a woman interrupts him and says, schlep, schlep, not slep, schlep. (laughs) How could that not be Nora
0: if it is not Nora Ephron then i would i just love the idea that nick Pelleggi, you know by just like writing across the room you know from her on like writing retreats <laughs> in malibu or whatever has just absorbed her, her influence so that it has made it into Should some I... crime drama
2: let's yeah, do Yeah i want to see this movie is
1: it are we saying it's Nora are we We're just going with it okay incorrect oh what
2: is it from
0: <laughs>
1: this this is from the film city hall <laughs>
0: Oh, a classic romantic drama.
1: Oh, uh, yes, City Hall. <laughs> who,
0: who is in City Hall? It's
1: uh, John Cusack and uh, Al Pacino and Bridget Fonda. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> directed by, I think, um, I want to say Harold Becker, who directed Scent of a Woman. I think it was maybe right after Scent of a Woman. Oh, love my it. God. All right, number three. This is also two people talking, starting with a woman and then a man. The woman says, what kind of person has an unlisted address? And the man says, I'll tell you what kind of person, the kind that doesn't want to be dead, the kind people are trying to kill all the time. (laughs) I feel like you're trying to trick us here.
0: (laughs) I mean that's what's going to happen everywhere here. I mean even when she started off strong with tiramisu. Like I remember that from uh, right and from also S- what, in Seattle. But you're not wrong to think that's an Italian. Well, dessert.
2: also what kind of person has an unlisted address is a very Nora Ephronian uh, question. Like that's yes. the <laughs> you
0: know but it's multiple uh, murder attempts and that's not very Nora. Ephron. Right,
2: that feels very Nick Pelleggi. Should we get should we guess <laughs> Nick Pulegi, which is I think let's what... go with
0: Pulegi on this incorrect.
2: Song. It's Ephron. <laughs> This oh, is man. from Heartburn. Oh God, we're going that the is obvious. That's my wife's
0: favorite movie.
2: Yeah, okay, for Nora Ephron is the only completest I will ever be. For Nora Ephron. that's pretty <laughs> much the most complete <laughs> then, I get.
0: Then I think you should be carrying us more than you than you are.
1: Yeah, I know that's true. Lindsay, have you seen Bewitched? Yeah, of course. I've I seen. I haven't. Should I watch? Should I watch Bewitched? Uh, no, but
2: like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. And you do have time in your head, but no, it's not.
2: It's
1: not very good. Alright, question number four. This is just one line of dialogue from a male character. Sure, mom, I settle down with a nice girl every night, then I'm free the next morning.
2: <laughs> um hmm.
0: This really is a good game.
2: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really is. Um Let's just say Nora, I guess. Because we keep saying we keep saying Nora. <laughs>
1: Nora incorrect great uh. that line is from goodfellas
0: oh that it is from goodfellas now i, I feel bad i should have carried that i should have carried i haven't this seen it yet
1: okay one more goddamn government fucks you coming and going um. goddamn
0: government fucks you coming and going i mean the government's always fucking people in nick Pelleggi movies that's yet
2: that's true yet <laughs> we've gotten them all wrong <laughs> because we've thought this way
0: <laughs> i know should we zag and say nora
1: yeah, let's say Nora. Correct. Yes. It's from Silkwood. Wow. And
0: the goddamn government.
1: You guys won the game.
2: <laughs> I can't we believe did. you didn't use one line from Julia and Julia. How dare you?
1: <laughs> I know the whole movie.
0: So the last bit of business before we let you go, Lindsay. Every episode we ask our guest to tell us about um, a independent movie theater or some yeah. screening series or Something that you are missing right now that is near and dear to your heart.
2: Let's instead of me doing something in New York where I where I live now. I was thinking of I'm from Newton, Massachusetts, and the theater that I went to as a kid, which is still around, thank God, because it was like truly a saving grace. Was the Coolidge Corner Theater? Sure. I don't know if you've ever been there, I have. but it's an incredible place. It's in a really cool zone, and I would really strive to go there almost every weekend that I possibly could. And they're doing. I think a lot of theaters are doing this too, but kind of online viewing where you can rent something from them online and then the proceeds go to their staff. So I really recommend checking that
1: out. Here's the part of the episode when we turn to you to help keep those places we miss going to so much right now alive. We are
0: encouraging you to contribute to the Art House America Fundraiser, a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films in Art House Convergence, a nonprofit association dedicated to sustainability and community-based mission-driven media exhibition.
1: You can find a link in our show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. She is at Karina Longworth. And you should subscribe to both of our other podcasts, because why not? Mine is called The Memory Palace is called You Must Remember This.
1: Let's find out what we'll be watching this week with our guest, screenwriter Michael Green.
0: Hey, Karina and Nate. It's Michael Green. I was hoping you could watch Eyes of Laura Mars with me because
2: no one else will.
0: So track down Eyes of Laura Mars and catch us next week. It's a fun one. Talk to you guys again.